five seconds. He's going to throw it. Howard leaps. He has it. Touchdown, Carolina. Back from the dead to tie the game with two seconds to go. Snap back, spot down. The kick is cleanly away. It is good. And Nick it's Carter with yes, a 54-yard field goal. And how about them Tar Heels? They do it. Here's Kupak. Gives off to Amos. He's good. He's good. He's good. He's Jordan back to kick. It's blocked again. Picked up. It'll be a touchdown, Carolina, for Bracey Walker. He blocks his second punt and scores his second touchdown of the season. It's 14 to 13. Mr. Jordan meet Mr. Walker. Bernard fields it at the 26. Heading to the far side. Gio at the 35. Gio, he's at the 50. No, he's not. Yes, he is. Gio, he's going to take it for a touchdown. This is the Heel Tough Blog Podcast on Spreaker.com. Hey guys, and welcome into this edition of the Heel Tough Blog Podcast. It's Anthony Pagnotta with you guys, as always, the host of the Heel Tough Blog Podcast. And today, we'll have Josh Marlowe joining us to help break down some of the biggest what-ifs in Carolina football history. An inspiration that we got from a tweet that I put out on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. You guys really ran with that and gave us some sensational answers. So we take a look at the top five answers that we received and also... We'll look at some of the other ones that you guys submitted. But first, we have to start with the opening drive here today where we go and update you on everything that's happening on the Tar Heel recruiting trail. This is the opening drive. And so we have to talk about the four commitments that happened in six days now, just about two weeks ago. That's three-star tight end Kendall Carr from Stuart Kramer High School in Cramerton, North Carolina. Three-star wide receiver Tylee Kraft from Sumter High School in Sumter, South Carolina. Three-star tight end John Copenhaver from Roswell High School in Roswell, Georgia. And three-star athlete Cedric Gray from Audrey Kell High School in Charlotte, North Carolina. So you look at the two tight ends. We'll start with both of those guys. Both guys are phenomenal wide receiver type tight ends. So they're going to be Y type tight ends, not the H tight ends that you'll see whenever you look at some of the breakdowns of some of the guys in the draft. Uh, if, if you want to look at it that way. But these two guys really are going to be mostly focused on the passing game. They're not really going to be guys that are going to be inline blockers, although they will play inline a little bit. Both of them show some willingness to block. Carr a little more experienced, I think, of the two, but both come from offenses that threw the ball a pretty good amount for high school offenses, and both were very, very effective. Great speed. Both guys have 4-6-40 speed, so really good for tight ends. Both of them with reliable hands. So these guys, I think, are going to be integral parts of the passing game in coming years. It'll be interesting to see whether or not one of them is able to separate themselves from the other or whether they're able to work together. When you look at the wide receiver, Tylee Kraft, a guy that is listed as a three-star, he has been elevated to a four-star on one of the recruiting sites. Not sure which one.
one it is just yet. I believe it's 24-7 sports, but I have not been able to confirm that just yet as I do not think they have switched the official rating online, but that was released earlier this week. Ty Lee did put that on his Twitter page, so keep an eye out for that. But a big, lengthy wide receiver. Problem is he does play in an offense at Sumter High School that is really, really run-based. So you don't get to see a whole lot of what he can produce on tape, but really good speed, able to take the top off of defenses, and has the ability to go up and get the football again in very small portions that we've seen from him he looks pretty good so it will be interesting to see what will happen with him going forward especially if he is a four-star now he was a guy that committed right after the offer from Carolina so really did love Carolina and everything that they had brought to the table so it will be interesting to see if he does start to gain some steam with the recruiting services whether or not the Tar Heels are able to hold his commitment and then there's three-star athlete Cedric Gray now this is a guy that can play on both sides of the football his tape on the offensive side of the football was spectacular a guy that can catch just about anything has plenty of diving grabs going up and getting the football on tape if you love those types of receivers you'll love Cedric Gray good speed after the catch as well has the good ability to separate especially for a guy that was a junior in high school and played for an offense in Audrey Kell that really wasn't all that effective a year ago a team that really did struggle in the Charlotte area a year ago but he had a very effective season. He's led the team in receiving each of the last two seasons at Audrey Kell High School. So he's a guy that's been doing it for the last couple of seasons and now has his senior year to continue to grow as they are under new coaching. So they're hoping that they can maybe take that program back in the right direction. Cedric Gray might be a guy that can help him. When you look at the defensive side of the football, he has great speed that allows him to fly around and make good tackles in open space. A very good tackler. And you got to look at what he does on the offensive side of the ball and wonder how that would translate to the defensive side of the ball. Good ball skills. Now the thing is he does play outside linebacker at the high school level. He is very thin for an outside linebacker so more than likely what would happen is is he will be moved back to safety if he does stay on the defensive side of the football. Now his decision is a very interesting one and we'll talk about that here in just a second. We do want to update you where the class stands as of right now according to 24-7 Sports. The 2000 2020 recruiting class for the Tar Heels sits eighth overall in the country and fourth in the ACC. The best rating that Carolina has had in a recruiting class since the Butch Davis era. Everybody knows that. Larry Fedora had some moments where he was recruiting really well, but never got this high. Mac Brown and his staff have just done a sensational job, and we heard it from the get-go with Mac Brown and most of the guys on his staff. The focus is in the state of North Carolina, and that has come to fruition fruition as six of the 12 commitments in the 2020 class for the Tar Heels are from the state of North Carolina. Now, there are three guys that narrowed down their list, three very big prospects, all of them in-state guys that narrowed their list down last week. The Heels cracked the top 10 for 2025 star weak side defensive end Desmond Evans from Lee County High School in Sanford, North Carolina. Now, of course, you guys know this was one of the guys that Larry Fedora was on from a very young age 
package offered him before his sophomore season. And, you know, you look at Desmond Evans, this is a guy that's going to come in and make an immediate impact wherever he lands. Now, we've heard that this is going to be an in-state battle for a long time. Carolina and NC State are the favorites. Duke was another team to keep an eye on. All three of those teams are in the top 10. But a couple of interesting teams to keep an eye on, Alabama and Clemson, especially Clemson, who has made a nice push with him. Those are the ones that could disrupt this in-state battle that many people thought it would be for the five-star defensive end. But as of right now, the Tar Heels are in pretty good standing with Devisman Evans, and they are in his top 10, so that means they are still around in the race. Meanwhile, 2024-star outside linebacker Trenton Simpson narrowed down his list to just Five, and the Tar Heels are one of the teams on that list. Now, you've heard for a while the Tar Heels are now becoming the favorites for Simpson. And while I do think that is true, I do caution people just a little bit because Georgia has made a significant push, especially over the last couple of weeks. Simpson has been a common visitor at Georgia. And if I had to guess right now, it's between them and the Tar Heels, although there are some teams that are lurking in the back. Miami was an interesting team that he put on the list. And then, of course, he does have Auburn on the list as well. So keep an eye on those two teams. But I think right now, when you look at his recruitment, Carolina and Georgia are the two teams that are battling it out for him. Carolina making the list really is something that we probably expected, but it is also reassuring that the Tar Heels are doing a good job with the in-state outside linebacker who just continues to climb towards being a five-star. He has had a phenomenal camp season, and the Heel Tough blog and the Peel Tough blog podcast, we are going to go out and actually watch when they complete their spring game on May 30th here in Charlotte. See if we can't talk to Trenton about his recruitment just a little bit and about everything going on. And of course, later on this offseason, we will be scouting the four-star outside linebacker from Mallard Creek High School. So the last one to determine his list, narrowed it down to eight. That was Moose Muhammad III. Moosin Muhammad III, that is the son of former Carolina Panthers wide receiver Moosin Muhammad II, who unfortunately did not get into the Panthers ring of honor. Neither did Julius Peppers, but we'll talk about that later on in the 40-yard dash. But when you look at Moose Muhammad III's list, Carolina is one of the teams on there that I think some people believed would be on there, but you wonder how serious of a contender Carolina is. With Cedric Gray's commitment, Carolina's wide receiving core does seem a bit loaded. Now, Cedric Gray is not listed as a wide receiver, but from watching him a little bit over the last couple of years and looking at his body type, I think a wide receiver probably fits him better than on the defensive side of the football, although they may use him at safety, which I think could fit his body style pretty well as well. If they are going to plan on using him at safety, that over opens the door a little bit more because with Gray committed, that would be the fourth wide receiver in the 2019 or excuse me, 2020 class that is committed. Ray Greer, the wide receiver from South Point in Belmont, North Carolina, was the first to commit. Of course, Josh Downs, the wide receiver from North Gwinnett High School in Suwannee, Georgia, and the cousin of current 
North Carolina Tar Heels defensive back coach Dre Bly. He is also committed in the class. And then, of course, Tylee Kraft, who we just talked about moments ago, also committed. So if Cedric Gray is the guy that is moving in at wide receiver, that's four guys already committed in the class. And while you never know, there might be another guy that is interested. Maybe Muhammad is that guy that wants to join it and make it a five wide receiver class for the Tar Heels. There are a lot of guys in this prior class, in the 2019 class, that are still waiting to join the team. And there aren't a ton of guys that are scheduled to go to uh, the next level due to graduation next season. So the Tar Heels will have a ton of wide receiver depth already in place. Muhammad would have to fight his way up the depth chart. And you wonder if there are other opportunities out there that present a little bit more wide open um, you know, chances for him and whether or not he does end up potentially going to one of those other schools. NC State is one of the favorites for him right now, Texas A&M as well as his father's alma mater, Michigan State, also seem to be ahead of Carolina at the moment, but don't count out Carolina because of Moose Muhammad's ties to Dre Bly, who was the defensive backs coach at Myers Park High School back in 2016 and 2017. And also make sure that you keep an eye on his connection with Cameron Roseman Sinclair, the current commit in the 2019 or 2020 class for the Tar Heels um, as well. So uh, those are the major updates on the recruiting trail. And now we turn to the main topic where we focus on the biggest what ifs in Carolina football history. So we turn to the main topic of this podcast and it comes from a tweet that I did a couple of weeks ago now, and it was, what is the biggest what-if in Carolina football history? That was motivated by another account on Twitter posting, uh, what is your biggest what-if in uh, college football history? So I just rolled with it, and you know I didn't think it would get as much run as it actually did, but it got a ton of run, and so today... We're going to look back at some of the biggest what-ifs in Carolina football history. And I guess the area that we have to start with and probably the most commonly mentioned of the, uh, you know, the, the answers that I saw were, you know, Carolina's 1996 loss at Virginia. The Tar Heels were up 17-3 and driving to score in the fourth quarter. And that's when quarterback Chris Kildorf was intercepted by Antoine Harris, who returned the ball for 95 yards uh, to the house. And that really changed that game. Uh, Virginia would score 17 consecutive points in that game to win. And, you know, I mean, we talk about some of those close but not ju- not just not enough moments in Carolina history. Most of them have been recent. This one was one of the big ones here, and it dropped Carolina from 8th to 15th in the AP poll, and with everything that happened in front of them, there probably would have been a chance that Carolina could have climbed as high as 5th, maybe even 4th in the AP poll towards the end of the season, could have put themselves in the thick of the national championship hunt. And so, Josh, I, I ask you, you know, when, when you look back on a, a game like that, you know, we weren't able to, of course, you know, see that game because we, we were very young. I mean, both of us weren't even a year old yet. But just, you know, from seeing the amount of reactions that a lot of people have and, and from knowing Carolina football, this, this feels like another one of those classic what, what if missed moments that we see so often with Carolina football. 
Yeah, definitely when you look at what happened the rest of the way, the teams that were at, at the time in front of Carolina, that's, that's what really hurt the most was what, what happened to the teams that were in front of you after you blew that game. You would have you know had a chance to possibly play in an Orange Bowl and at the time play for a national championship. The reason why, um, to me, it's, it's one of the lesser ones, that was the first year they were really, really good under Mac Brown. Like, mm-hmm. they hadn't really yet learned how to play in those kind of games yet. Um, yeah, you, you know, it's, it's just part of it. you got to learn how to lose a big game for you win a big game most times. Uh, and that's what they did against uh, Virginia that, that year was unfortunate. Um, you would have definitely thought that they would have learned from that game going into the next year's matchup where they played Florida State, a top-five matchup in Keenan Stadium. And of, course, and, of course, they lost that game too, but – you know, it's just one of those. They 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 finally gotten good under Mac Brown, but didn't know how to how to be a championship level team at the at the time. Well, I mean, at that point, Chris Kildorf was ranked as the best quarterback in the ACC, quarterback ratings wise, and was expected to be able to hold his own in a situation like that. I I just feel like you know, when when you're up seventeen to three, there's a an area where you probably shouldn't have taken a risk by throwing the football there. Many people look back and say they probably should have ran the ball, and that falls a little more on the offensive coaching staff. But, uh, you know, I think the biggest thing that everybody will take away from that is what you mentioned. The Orange Bowl reps were in the building, and Carolina's never been to an Orange Bowl. That would have been easily the biggest bowl game that Carolina has ever played in. And, you know, I don't think they would have made the national championship that year because there were some powers up at the top of the country that were able to sort of stay in place where they were for most of the season. It was really just some of the teams around 5, 6, and 7 that fell off towards the end of the season that would have given Carolina the opportunity. But I think, you know, an Orange Bowl appearance would have been huge because that's something that Tar Heel fans are still waiting on. And it, it sort of was, I think, what defined Mac Brown's not being able to get over the hump. Although, it's like you said, that that was the first time that they were really good. Mac Brown's tenure, I think, is looked back on extremely positively, but... You know, it didn't really start out all that great, and it kind of took a little bit of time to build up to where they were at. So, you know, I do get why some people sort of look back on that and really say, you know, this is the biggest what-if in Tar Heel football history because an appearance in the Orange Bowl, who knows what that does for you, not only, you know, on the field but recruiting-wise as well, and who knows what kind of impact that has on something that we'll talk about here in just a minute. But you did mention the 1997 loss to Florida State. This, uh, you know, Carolina came in ranked fifth in the country. Both teams were undefeated, and a win over Florida State at the time probably would have put them right in the thick of the national championship hunt, if not in position to potentially uh, be in one of the top two spots in the country. Now, remember, they did not have the BCS just yet, so you were still determined champion by the writers. So it really was just based on the eye test. So a win like that, I think, really could have put Carolina in a great spot. Um, unfortunately, they lost 20-3, to and that game was at home and ended any hope. Uh, Florida State would eventually lose further on down the line, but still would earn the Orange Bowl uh, invitation over the Tar Heels due to the win. So, you know, this was another one of those losses. And I think, you know, we, we talked about it a little bit when we were just discussing the topic overall and when we were looking at some of the answers that people had submitted. In your mind, you feel like this is more of the bigger what-if of the Mac Brown era when you focus on the games than the 1996 loss. Am I correct? 
Yeah, because you, you, you fail to beat, you know, Florida State in, on your home turf. You didn't even score a touchdown. Um, and he probably thought in the back of his mind, we can't get it done here in terms of I can't win a national championship here the way that the program is currently built. Um, and, of course, I, I don't think after the loss he thought he thought about Texas, where he'd eventually left Carolina for. But I'm sure every coach kind of has that thought. That's why they leave jobs a lot of times. You leave for a better chance to go win a national championship. And I think that was just a game that kind of solidified his we, – we've built something from the bottom up. We've got a great program that could – you know, if I stay here, we'll probably win 9, 10, 11 games year in, year out. Maybe make an Orange Bowl here or there, but we'll probably never win a national championship currently the way the program is built. And that, that's why it's the biggest what-if, because what if they do win that game? Mm-hmm. They probably you know, and will have a chance to play for a national championship, um, and then it, it makes it harder for him to leave for Texas after that season's over. So, yeah, that's definitely the bigger what-if in regards to Mac Brown. Yeah, well, I, I think you know that's a fair point. And, you know, I I think it actually is. I don't think it's more, and this is what I want to stress when we look at the what-ifs. The what-ifs are not a negative on this Carolina football program. They're moments that you look back on and say, well, you know, what if Carolina was able to complete this? We're not ranking on the teams here. Uh, But, you know, this year you you, kind of wonder in 97, you know, at the time there weren't really – consistent national powers. Just about every year you had different teams that were rotating in there, and so Carolina was one of those teams that you looked back on and said, well, you know, they they probably would have had a chance to not only establish themselves in the late 90s but become a staying power as well. And this was their best year because they – were ranked inside the top 10 the entire football season, um, which is shocking because, I mean, that just never really happens. Usually, as we've seen in more recent years, whenever Carolina is ranked, especially when they start climbing up in the polls, they'll lose a game where they drop. And again, there's no guarantee that they would have ended up completing, you know, finishing out the schedule undefeated. You know, of course, as we know, as time goes along, more and more pressure is added. But, I mean, you look at the schedule in the final two weeks of the season, and, you know, they did go on the road to Clemson at the time, but Clemson was an unranked team. Again, it would have been a little more pressure at the time, but I still think, you know, Carolina favored very well in that matchup. And then against Duke, a team that they actually ended up beating 50-14 to in that game. So you could see where Duke was at the time. It looked like the schedule was setting up extremely well for the Tar Heels. And, you know, I think you you wonder if that did have some sort of impact. And we'll kind of parlay that into the next what-if that everybody likes to talk about. And this was probably the most common answer that we saw after the 1996 loss was, you know, what if Mac Brown never leaves for Texas? So I want to ask you, so if you, you do you think that if they win that game against Florida State, even with Texas comes, you know, even when they do come calling, do you think that Mac Brown decides, you know what, I got something building here at Carolina? At that time, they probably would have been in the national championship hunt the year before the BCS came out. Do you think that Mac Brown decides to tell Texas no and stay in Chapel Hill, or do you think that that doesn't really have that much of an impact? I still think he would have left because it's Texas. It's arguably when Texas is elite, probably the best job in college football, unlimited money, unlimited resources, in a state that lives the sport, so there's unlimited talent, 
Um, and football's number one there. Whereas no matter what Mac Brown was going to do on the football side of things in Chapel Hill, would never be the number one sport, deservedly so because of what Dean Smith the Milt had built basketball-wise. And a lot of people don't understand that was a big reason why he left was because they were having the hard time getting the funding for the football program and getting the stuff he wanted. Now that he's back, he's getting just about whatever he wants um, as the second-time head coach at Carolina. But when he was here the first time, when he was winning 10 and 11 games in back-to-back years, they still couldn't get the money that he wanted. Um, I mean, he was donating a lot of his own money to get the uh, the west part of the, the end zone uh, finish because they couldn't get the money from the, the boosters. At Texas, that's not going to be a problem. They're going to give you what you want to help you win um, a national championship. You get to coach in the Red River rivalry, which is arguably a top-five rivalry in the sport. So I still think he would have left because that's one of the – it's the Yankees of college football. It's the Celtics or whatever you want to go to. Um, and, and you can still understand why he left Carolina for Texas. I think it would definitely be a tougher decision. I, I really do think, honestly, if they were in – the hunt for a national championship, you have to think that then their bowl game, of course, becomes much more important rather than playing in the Gator Bowl, which, you know, it's understandable then why he would step away before that game. Texas came calling before that. Now, I think it would have been interesting as to whether or not Texas would have been willing to wait or not if it would have been one of those scenarios where they would have told Mac Brown, look, it's either you come now or you we're going in a different direction. Because I do think that if it was, look, it's now or never, I think he might have actually stayed in Carolina because it's hard to leave a team that is in the thick of a national championship race. You have to remember that at the time, no one was really that dominant in the ACC. Miami was still working their way to becoming the power that they would eventually end up being. I think, you know, it would have at least, at the least, made Mac Brown pause and say, look, I need to compare these two jobs. I know that, you know, Texas is a powerhouse. First of all, there's a lot more pressure at Texas. And if he does win a national championship at Carolina, you got to think that was, I think, one of the reasons that he did leave and go to Texas because he was looking for a national championship. If he wins one at Carolina, I think. First of all, that's honestly, in my opinion, a better-looking achievement because I feel like Texas is an area that people know you can win at. Carolina is not, you know, because as you mentioned, it was such, you know, at that point it had grown into a full-on basketball school, and rightfully so because of Dean Smith. So I, I, I wonder. I think it would have been one of those scenarios that, you know, people would have had to watch closely I think it would have been probably one of the first great um, debates between you know whether or not he ends up leaving for a football power or staying um, you know we haven't really seen a lot of coaches since that point that have really had to make a decision between those two schools but those two types of schools I should say but um, I mean you look at Mac Brown and what he did at Carolina 69 46 and one in his time on campus from 1988 to 97. He was 20 and three in his final two seasons in Chapel Hill. And, you know, I think in those late 90s, before you get to the 2000s where Miami started to dominate, I think there was an area that, you know, Carolina could have slid in and, you know, potentially found themselves a national championship. Talked about 97. I think 98 could have been another year where Carolina could have gotten in there. And even 99, I think those are the three years where Carolina would have had their chances. 
because over those next three years under Carl Torbush, the team sort of dropped to where they were when John Bunning took over. They were 17 and 18 in the next three seasons under Torbush, and that was really where I think Carolina sort of sunk back into that uh, that that resting giant that a lot of people have always seen Carolina as. And I think that's, you know, eventually what led us to the 2010 season, which was the season that I think everybody got up for. Um, I remember, you know, we, we were young. This was probably the first big football memory for us when we were younger, when we first got really involved in uh, following Carolina football because the 2010 season was about as hyped as you could get around Carolina football. I mean, the team entered the season ranked. Um, and at 18th in the country, but there were a lot of people that thought if there was a team that could sort of come out of those lower teens, high 20s, to make the push for a national championship, it could be Carolina just because of the amount of talent that they had. But of course, right before the season begins, the day before the game against LSU in the Georgia Dome, Carolina loses 13 players due to suspension. Defensive tackle Marvin Austin, cornerback Charles Brown, one of your favorites of all time, Cornerback uh, Kendrick Burney, running back Sean Drone, defensive end Linwan Ewall, safety Brian Gupton, running back Ryan Houston, wide receiver Greg Little, defensive end Michael McAdoo, defensive end Robert Quinn, safety Denoris Searcy, safety Jonathan Smith, and safety DeWanta Williams. All those guys were suspended for that first game of the season. And then, of course, as we went later on in the year, Marvin Austin was eventually uh, kicked off the team. Uh, Robert Quinn and Greg Little, they were permanently declared ineligible. So they were still part of the team, but they were declared ineligible. And Jonathan Smith would not play for that entire season. Other guys that missed significant games. I mean, you look at some of these guys. Kendrick Burney, starting corner, missed five games. Uh, DeWanta Williams, the starting safety, missed four games. You had Denoris Searcy missed three games. So that's your secondary right there. Uh, three guys that would eventually go on and actually play in the NFL. Um, of course, Bernie and, and Searcy were a little more um, you know, experienced in the NFL than DeWanta Williams was. And then Sean Drone would miss one game. So I mean, when you look back on some of those names that were suspended and the expectations that Carolina had coming into that year, I mean, this has to. This is another one that you know a lot of people mentioned, and rightfully so. It's on this list. Yeah, that team started this zero and two, finished eight and four, mm-hmm. with all the suspension that you had up front. Um, you put those, you you put all those guys on those on that team for the week one game against LSU mm-hmm. and the week two game against Georgia Tech, where they both lost close games. The LSU game. If they throw any of the three times Pianalto was held, they probably win the game by running in a touchdown. Still mad about um, that. And then the Georgia Tech game, if they pick up a first down on a fourth and one, you just don't know what's going to happen. They still won eight games while missing a lot of uh, uh, players from what was a top five defense in college football at the time. Your secondary was as good as anybody in the country's. That's depleted. Your defensive line was... Uh, pretty doggone good for in the ACC. That's gone. Um, you look at the offense. Your running back was gone. Your your number one receiving threat gone. Mm-hmm. And they still won eight regular season games. So yeah, you give me that team with a loaded squad. The only thing that I would have questioned was were they ever going to score enough consistently to win games? Now at the time, college football was not dominated by up tempo and spread offenses. It was just kind of started getting into the fabric of the sport. Remember, that was a team that played 
They wanted to shorten the game, really. Right. You know, because they could, they had a very good defense. Run the ball. Uh, be conservative with T.J. Yates in the passing game. Um, that would be my only question. Um, I think back on it, that's probably the most talented team we've seen in Chapel Hill. Even more talented than the team in 2015 that took number one Clemson to the ropes. Right. Um, and that team's up there with with the team that Mac Brown had in ninety the the ninety seven ninety eight year. That's how much talent was on that roster. Uh, now we know how we got all that talent. A lot of it was illegal stuff. Not all Butch Davis's fault, but. That was just a loaded team and an ACC that wasn't dominant. Clemson wasn't Clemson, and Florida State wasn't Florida State. Um, so they had a very good chance to win the ACC and maybe play for a national championship. I mean, you, you mentioned that you know this team wasn't really built offensively, and that's true because they they were real. They relied on their defense to make plays, and, and their offense was good enough to you know eventually score enough points down the line to win the games that they had to win. And I mean, you look at some of the names that were gone, you know, from that team. I mean, Marvin Austin, former five-star defensive tackle. Granted, didn't really live up to the five-star billing, but was still a key part of that defensive line. Robert Quinn, who was the leading sack artist and was, you know, as we've seen in the NFL, and now you're going to get to see with your Dallas Cowboys, this is a guy that is really, that that's what he's there for. He is a pure pass rusher, and he made that extremely successful in his early years with St. Louis and then eventually L.A., uh, and did the same when he got to Miami. So you wonder, you know, he probably would have been able to showcase that his senior year in college as well. And then, I mean, just look at the secondary. I mean, at safety, the two deep was completely destroyed. All four of the two deep safeties for that season were gone for that first game of the year. And you had guys that missed significant time with DeWanta Williams, as I said, missing four games, and Denoris Searcy missing three. Jonathan Smith didn't play the entire season, so only Brian Goopton got a lot of playing time. And, and at the time, I mean, Brian Goopton wasn't really that experienced. He was sort of forced into a bigger role, so... I mean, it, you combine that with also missing your starting corners for that first game of the year. Kendrick Burney and Charles Brown were both starters, and then some depth guys defensively as well. That defense was destroyed. And then offensively, while I don't think that they leaned as heavy on offense as they did in some of the later years under Larry Fedora, I mean, you lose your top receiver in Greg Little. And remember, there was never really anyone to replace him. I mean, at that time, Jeremy Boyd was your number two receiver, and he was pretty much Mac Brown before. Mac or Mac Brown, Mac Hollins before Mac Hollins, and he was just he he wasn't able to have that same sort of impact that Mac Hollins was able to have. He did have the big plays, but wasn't able to make it quite as consistent as Mac Hollins eventually would. So, I think you know you lose those that amount of guys, especially that amount of talent on that team. I think that was kind of what tore it up. And I mean, you you mentioned it; those first two games of the year. They should have won both of those games, I thought. And, you know, you wonder if you have these superstar players in the lineup, what type of impact that ends up having. I mean, if you start the season 2-0 and as opposed to 0-2, all of a sudden everything's rolling in the right direction. Some of those games later on down the line in the season that you end up losing, maybe you don't lose that because, you know, your guys are starting to, you know, gain some confidence and you, you still would have had plenty more talent on the field. I, I think Carolina probably would have been, I don't know if they would have jumped up into the BCS conversation at the time. Um, you know, I think they probably would have finished about sixth or seventh in the country, but that would have been huge for Carolina at the time. And I do think that, you know, look, Butch Davis would probably still be here. 
Um, you know, I, I know, of course, he had the time that he took away from the game and now has circled back around to Florida International. And you can see already the type of success that he's having there. Butch Davis was a guy that was a very strong coach. Now, he did have some struggles against NC State. So you wonder if maybe that would have eventually caught up to him. But I really do think that that was a real opportunity for Carolina. So the last one that we'll talk about here uh, in depth uh, is the 2015 loss in the ACC championship game. Yet another one that everybody likes to harp on. Um, This one was a little bit different, though, because Carolina at one point was down 19 in the fourth quarter, came back into the game, and eventually made it a 45-37 to game. Of course, everybody knows what happened. Hunter Crayford recovered the onside kick, but was deemed to be offsides despite multiple angles showing that he wasn't offside. And a win, well, it could have put Carolina solidly in the final playoff discussion, although... Again, that was the season where you did play two FCS opponents and had a loss to a 3-9 and nine South Carolina team. So, you know, when you look back on that loss, you know, we've discussed it in depth really since that 2015 season, and we said it right after that game. You weren't guaranteed to go down and score and get the two-point conversion, and then even if you do win that game... There's still a lot of things that probably had to happen in front of you to get into the college football playoff. But, I mean, that 2015 loss is definitely one of those ones that you look back and just wonder, you know, what if they had one? Is there a chance that they could have gotten into the college football playoff? Yeah, that's definitely a game that, you know, you you dug yourself a pretty big hole, but you were there at the end. And it's like you said, there's no guarantee that you go down and scoring the touchdown, I was pretty confident the offense was rolling. This more how you – calling the right play from the three-yard line to get the two-point conversion to force overtime would have been my biggest fear. Something Larry Fedora was not really all exactly. that good at. Um, but before we talk about that, let's go back to the year before, 2014. We play a bowl game against Rutgers in Detroit, get absolutely annihilated. What if that bowl game goes differently? Do we fire Do we fire Vic Coning from the defense and bring in Gene Chizik? That was the loss that kind of started the run that the twenty seven or the twenty fifteen mm-hmm. team had was getting embarrassed by a Rutgers team that wasn't very good. Um, and I've always, I thought about this uh, when you had the topic because that was a very bad feeling for us as fans. Mm-hmm. Um, so what if we win that game? Does Larry Fedora make the staff changes that he made? Does he open up as a coach to get more trust from his players? Because at the time, he had, the, the team didn't fully trust him yet. And so that, that kind of plays into what all of what the success we had in 15. But then you look at 15. You can't beat a 3-9 and nine South Carolina team um, on a neutral field. You play two FCS opponents. And, again, and one of the games, you had to bench your starter because your offense wasn't doing anything. Um, there have just been a lot of questions. The 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 ACC championship game law, uh, hurt uh, loss hurt, but you dug yourself a 19 point deficit. That Clemson team was really really good. Took Alabama 60 minutes in the national championship game a couple months later. Um, so for us, I looked at more as just a fun experience as a fan because it's something we've never got to experience. Yeah, we wanted more, but the chances of us playing making the playoff, even though you have the best win in college football. I think the two FCS games would have helped kept us out. They would have put, I think, was that the year TCU and Baylor had the the tiebreaker, and they put someone else in over them because there wasn't a, a uh, that that probably would have allowed them to get in over us. So it was a loss that hurt. Um, we of course we haven't gotten back there since, 
But now that Mac Brown's back, we kind of feel we'll be back there in the near future. And, of course, that was the beginning of what Clemson is now, which is now a football power. Oh, yeah, no, I think you're right. I don't think anybody should be ashamed about the fact that they lost that game. I think it would have been interesting because they did have, you know, some significant wins. Of course, we remember the game against Duke where Marquise Williams set the record for passing yards in a game. Um, in Carolina history, he just went nuts. And then, of course, the win on the road on Thursday night against Pittsburgh, a team that was ranked at the time. But I think you're right. You look back at the schedule, and it really wasn't set up for them to probably make a playoff run. But, you know, I, I think when you look back on, on those moments, there, there's plenty of what-ifs in Carolina football history. And, you know, it's just it's, it's fun to discuss them. And I think, you know, we, we might – hopefully we don't have more what-ifs, but we're going to have some more of those moments – I think that are going to appear in the next couple of years of success that you might have some moments that you have to look back on and say, you know, what if with Mac Brown? And that's, I think, what we want to get back to. We lost that at the end of the Larry Fedora era, but hopefully we'll be able to circle back around and get some more of those. So let's take a look at some of the other moments that were submitted by some of uh, the people on Twitter that responded to the question that we had. And we'll start with at Ambrose. 1879 on Twitter, he says, what if the 2018 Tar Heels had a quarterback? Very interesting question, and I mean, look, you know, Nathan Elliott had his struggles, same thing with Chad Surratt. One of the things that I think a lot of people have to look back on and wonder in that scenario is what if Tyler Shug, who eventually, you know, went and committed to Oregon after decommitting from Carolina, um, during the 2017 season, what if he commits in and signs in that 2018 class? Now, he would have been a true freshman, but there was a lot of talent there, and I know that the Tar Heels eventually did sign Cade Fortin and Jace Reuter in that class, but Tyler Shook was highly regarded, and there was a real chance that he could end up becoming the next quarterback that could make it to the NFL out of Oregon, so that would have been something interesting to see as to whether or not he could have come in and immediately taken over that job. At Nugget Palooza, our guy Gary Marbury on Twitter says, What if Carolina had been able to fall on the blocked punt in 1980 against Clemson? Now, this was a game that Carolina did win, but I think really for more of it, you know, impressive status at the time, because again, remember, 1980 was when national champions were determined by the writers still there was no BCS there was no playoff so the writers you had to impress them or else it wasn't going to work for you to win a national championship you wonder maybe if they win that game by a little more what happens but again they had a loss earlier in that year to Oklahoma that's mentioned down the line that we'll talk a little bit about uh and and actually right here at uh SKWAHDER uh, that is actually the former athletic director uh, here in Union County, the area that we live in down here. He says the 1980 loss to Oklahoma, that's definitely an interesting one. Um, you wonder if Carolina wins that one. That's the 1980 season, of course, when Carolina went on to win the ACC championship, their last ACC championship, and of course had guys like Lawrence Taylor on that team. So who knows? Who knows? Maybe Carolina does end up getting a, a, an early shot at playing for a national championship in that 1980 season if they end up winner winning that. Um, somebody uh, at Lob 
Ryerly says, what if Jack, the battering ram Merritt, doesn't play football for Carolina and we had to choose an inferior mascot? I think we all love the Tar Heel mascot. That is an interesting question. I don't know where the Tar Heels really would have gone with that, um, but they end up landing the ram and who knows, you know, where they would have gone from there. I don't think anybody really wants to find out. Uh, at 896F flat on Twitter says, what if, and I th- this was eventually corrected down the line, um, it was uh, Kelvin Bryant hadn't tore his knee up in Atlanta. Uh, that was one of the questions there. Uh, there's a good chance that he probably could have been in the Heisman race because Kelvin Bryant was extremely highly regarded at that time. Um, and another one that he said is, what if Derek Dooley eventually uh, stays in Chapel Hill? I think one of the earlier questions didn't have quite the same amount of success that Mac Brown did, but having a guy that stays for a longer period of time and was starting to sort of build some momentum with the Tar Heel football program, you wonder if Derek Dooley stays if Carolina could have eventually built at least into a consistent ACC power. Um, let's see. Some of the other ones, of course, the tick bite for Jack Tatum back in 1959 was extremely highly regarded as the head coach of the Tar Heels at the time. Of course, Tatum came over from Maryland prior to the 1950s sixth season and was with Carolina for three years of course at Maryland he did win a national championship so many wondered if he was able to stay healthy what he could have done for the Tar Heel football program Kyle at uh, Kyle underscore Walker 98 on Twitter says what if Mitch and Elijah stayed for the uh, 17th season does Fedora get a lifetime contract I'm gonna be really honest with you I, I, I don't know about that. I think that Carolina would have definitely been in a better position. I still do think that Larry Fedora probably would be the head coach of the Tar Heels right now, but I think the thing is, is I don't know if he would have ended up getting a lifetime contract because I still don't think that 17 team would have been all that successful. Still a lot of questions defensively, and they still had lost a ton from that prior season, of course. No Mac Hollins, still, no Ryan Switzer, so... I'm I'm not really sure if that would have had as big of an impact as maybe some people thought. Definitely having Mitch back would have helped, but I still don't think that the Carolina would have been all that successful. I don't think Fedora would have gotten a contract extension or anything, but I do think that he would be the head coach of the Tar Heels now, and this would basically be like last season. This would be a pressure situation for Larry Fedora to win now. Um, the difference is, of course, we wouldn't have some of the pieces in place. More than likely, Sam Howell would not be one of the guys that was battling for the quarterback position because he probably would have stayed at Florida State. A couple other recruits wouldn't have committed. So this class would have looked a lot different. So you, you kind of wonder if Larry Fedora would have been able to hang around much longer anyways. Um, I, it's It's probably more than likely looking at it probably not but you never really do know and so I think that's where we're going to stop I want to thank everybody that participated for uh, you know with this question and of course anybody that's listened to this podcast um, if you guys have any other ones make sure you chime in at future Torio on Twitter it's the pinned tweet you can get your answers in there so as we get ready to close it down it's now now time for the 40-yard dash It's time for the 40-Yard Dash on the Heel Tough Blog Podcast. 
So we'll start this edition of the 40-yard dash by updating you on the NFL draft and where all of the Tar Heels have landed after its conclusion. Of course, the only Tar Heel that was drafted in the NFL draft was outside linebacker Cole Holcomb. He was drafted in the fifth round, the final selection of the fifth round at 173 by the Washington Redskins. So he will be part of the group that will be trying to help replace former Tar Heel outside linebacker Zach Brown, who departed in the offseason. Zach Brown did end up actually signing during this past week with the Philadelphia Eagles. But let's turn back to the 2019 draft class. And defensive end Malik Corney, one of the guys that did go undrafted, he was picked up almost immediately afterwards. He signs with the Detroit Lions. Meanwhile, wide receiver Anthony Ratliff-Williams, who decided to leave early for the draft, he went undrafted but did sign with the Tennessee Titans, and many people believe that he will have a good chance to make that roster. Meanwhile, a guy that had to wait it out just a little more, a couple of days after the draft, offensive tackle William Sweet signs with the Air. Arizona Cardinals, so he will have a job in the preseason, and will be interesting to see if he is able to establish a role there in Arizona and potentially keep himself, if not on the 53-man roster, at least on the practice squad after he left early, skipping his senior year as he attempted to get drafted. Meanwhile, defensive tackle Jeremiah Clark, he did get a minicamp invite with the Raiders. That one was actually prior to some of the other signings that took place later on on in the week. Uh, that's when Jalen Dalton, who won undrafted as well, signed with the Bears following an impressive rookie minicamp with them. And J.K. Britt got a minicamp invite with the New York Giants. So congratulations to all of the Tar Heels that got their opportunities. And we'll see how, just how many of them are able to stick on NFL rosters for this upcoming season. Meanwhile, a name that is in the transfer portal and could potentially be being looked at by Carolina, Tavian Feaster, the running back from Clemson. He entered the transfer portal back in late April, and the Tar Heels were one of the teams that were on the list of teams that he will be considering to transfer to this offseason. Now, the Tar Heels, if he is eligible immediately this season, probably shouldn't be too invested in him as they are returning their top three running backs from a year ago. Michael Carter, Antonio Williams, and Javante Williams are all scheduled to come back. Javante Williams with another impressive spring, so they are expecting a bigger role for him. For him. But there is no guarantee that Feaster does graduate before he does transfer. If he does graduate, he would be eligible immediately. If not, he would have to sit out a year. So if he does have to sit out a year, that would be the scenario where I personally would think that Carolina should pursue him more heavily because there is a chance, of course, that Michael Carter will leave early. If he was to leave early, he would join Antonio Williams, who is a senior and is guaranteed to graduate this upcoming season and would not be back with the Tar Heels. So there would be a chance that Javante Williams would be the only guy on the roster with experience, although there is no guarantee, of course, that Michael Carter would go to the NFL still having Tavian Feaster in that situation would be nice if Michael Carter's hand injury is more severe then you might look at Feaster if he is eligible immediately 
Other than that, I think Feaster to Carolina might be off the table just a little bit, although there are still some people that believe the Tar Heels will push pretty heavily for the speedy Clemson transfer. Meanwhile, two Tar Heels that announced they would transfer earlier this offseason have landed at their destinations. K.J. Sales announced earlier this week that he will be playing his final season of eligibility at South Florida. And then just earlier today, the Senior transfer at running back, Jordan Brown, announced he will be transferring to Kansas State. So both of those guys landing in pretty solid spots for them. K.J. Sales going back home to South Florida. And then uh, Jordan Brown landing in a spot that has produced some very good running backs over the last couple of years out of their system at Kansas State. Jonah Milton retired earlier last week due to a medical issue with his knee. He had been fighting a knee injury since his senior year of high school, which he missed uh, with an ACL injury. He has never really been able to get back to that same player, so he is going to medically retire, step away, and focus on being an athletic trainer. But he does become the 18th player lost to attrition this season for the Tar Heels. Again, depth was one of the key concerns for Mac Brown in spring, and as of right now, it's not a situation that is really getting much better. And finally, former Tar Heel Julius Peppers was spurned in the first Panthers Ring of Honor announcement under new owner David Tepper. Steve Smith, Jake Delhomme, Wesley Walls, as well as Jordan Gross all were selected. Meanwhile, Julius was not selected, although some may believe that it is because they are waiting to put him in along with fellow Panther who retired this offseason, Ryan Khalil. And also some people believe that they may be waiting just to make sure that Julius doesn't have to come back in case of an injury or something like that. The Panthers may look to turn to the veteran defensive lineman just for a couple of games to see if he could come out of retirement. So you never know. So that's going to do it for this edition of the Heel Tough Blog Podcast. I want to thank you guys for listening as always and remind you that if you're trying to find the Heel Tough Blog Podcast, you can find it just about anywhere that they have podcasts. Spreaker, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn.com, or the TuneIn app, as well as plenty of other places that you can find podcasts. You can find it as well on the website, www.heeltoughblog.com. That's where you can find the blog as well. We have plenty of great stories that will be coming up and some great stories online. You can go in and look at the chances for us to land each of those guys that I just talked about in the opening uh, drive of the podcast. And you can also take a look at some of the other off-season articles that have been written so once again want to thank you guys for listening to the podcast and as always go Tar Heels Ah!